We're continuing our Romans series, so if you have a Bible, go ahead and open it up to Romans chapter 2. We'll be in Romans chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible, we've got some under the chair, so we'd encourage you to grab one of those um, so you can follow along with us. Uh, We want to get you in the habit of of looking at the Scriptures for yourself and checking what I'm saying. We want you to be double-checking that what I'm saying is actually coming out of the text because we believe that's where the truth is. In our series in Romans, we're in part one, and the first several chapters of Romans is uh, kind of a negative emphasis. And what we've said is that by seeing the bad news, by seeing how bad our situation is apart from Christ, that helps us to recognize how sweet and how good Jesus is for us, right? If, If you don't realize you're sick, you can't appreciate the cure. And so Paul is repeatedly hammering us here and Last week, it was tough for me um, because as I was preaching the bad news from the text last week, y'all were, y'all were making some kind of ugly faces at me. I just want you to know. So I want you to please pray for me and try to smile a little bit as I'm preaching today because it's going to be more bad news, okay? So more bad news this week. Uh, we're calling it this week, Beware of External Religion. Beware of External Religion. So it's a continuation of what Paul started last week in chapter 2 continuing the same thought, and what he's saying is, don't think that running to the externals of religion is going to save you. Only Jesus can save you. I don't know if this has ever happened to you. probably has. I think it's happened to most people that drive, but you're driving down the road, and you see someone in their car driving down the road at the same time, and they are just getting after it, enjoying their music. Have you ever seen that? They are they're beating the, the steering wheel, right? They're singing loud. I mean, they're just, they're dancing. Have you ever seen that happen? Raise your hand if you've ever seen that happen. Oh, it's, it's fun, isn't it? So sometimes you just think they look silly, right? Like maybe they're bad dancers and you just kind of laugh at them. But, but often when that happens, when I see people doing that, I feel kind of jealous, right? Like there's so much joy in that car. I want that joy, right? Like I want to be enjoying that music too. And so... Listen to this, it would be weird if I just kind of steadied my car next to theirs and I stared at them and I started trying to mimic them. I mean, that would be, that'd be real weird, right? Like they're beating their hands and I'm like, okay, I'm trying to keep time with their hands and I'm trying to mouth to their mouth, you know, like I'm singing what they're singing. That would just be stupid, wouldn't it? Because I'm not hearing the music. I'm just faking it. I'm, I'm imitating the externals of what they're doing but I'm not actually enjoying the music for myself. And that's the biggest danger of religion, is that we would see people going through external motions that are driven by an internal music that they're hearing, and we would say, oh, I see something over there that's good. I want to imitate that. I want to, look, I want to do that dance. And what Paul's going to say here is that we need to beware of, of just trying to mimic those externals. We, we actually have to hear the music. We have to hear the sweetness of God speaking to us and respond to that in love and say, yes, Lord, you are good. Yes, that's what I want. And, and dance to that music, respond to what we hear from him. So we're going to read in, in chapter 2, verses 12 through 29. And there are really some, some complex arguments in the text. So I want to encourage you. One of the things we're trying to do as a church is really renew our commitment to small groups and people getting with other believers and looking at the text together. So just want to encourage you, if, if you're not in a small group, to try to get into a small group where you can gather and look at the text with other people. 
uh, or if you can't fit in one of those regular small groups into your schedule, just grab another buddy that you could meet with and talk about what we're learning in the scripture. You can look at it together, pray for each other, but there's a lot of details here you wanna, you're going to want to go back over in, in detail. You're going to want to look at this some more. So starting in verse 12, it says, For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they're a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. On that day, when according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. But if you call yourself a Jew and you rely on the law and you boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you're instructed from the law, and if you're sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. For circumcision is indeed of value if you obey the law, but if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Let me pray. As I said, this, this is a lot of text. I'm going to pray and ask God to help us, um, to be with us, to uh, unfold this for us by his spirit. So let's pray. God, we ask for your help. We pray that you would uncover uh, your text for us, that we would see what you're driving at. God, I pray as we hear and see bad news that that would drive us to take refuge in you. We pray that we would see your goodness and that although we all stand condemned by law, you give us righteousness through Christ by mercy, by grace. We thank you for that and we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, I want to divide this into three sections and try to kind of chop it into pieces and and help you see the big ideas of what Paul is is arguing for us here. And the first thing that we see as Paul unfolds the the problem with external religion is that external religion will be uncovered. So there's a sense in which we think external religion will protect us, right? We might run to religion as something that will make us okay. And what Paul is arguing is just being in a religious club or going through religious motions is never enough. And in the end, there's a judgment where our secrets will be revealed. And so we can fool some of our friends and say, look at how clean and shiny my life is. Look at how well I'm keeping the religious rules of our club. And we might impress the other people in our religious club, but in the end, we're facing a judgment where all of our secrets will be revealed, will be uncovered. And so, again, we, we keep hearing bad news here as Paul's trying to drive us to say, so don't 
Rest in your religiosity. Don't rest in this external religion, but rest in Jesus and not these works because there's going to be a final judgment. It says in verse 12, for all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. He's, remember, continuing what he started last week. So let's look back at verse 11. Look, verse 11 from last week says, for God shows no partiality. Verse 10, he said, there's judgment for the Jew and the Greek, right? And so that's his way of saying, all of you, whether you're a pagan that's just kind of run and done your own thing and tried to follow your own heart, or if you're this really religious, uptight Jewish person that's followed the law and tried to do everything the way you're supposed to, tried to be an upstanding citizen and a good neighbor, all will be judged. All will be judged. There's no partiality. God doesn't say, oh, they attended Grace Bible Church. Okay, they're fine. They're in, right? He doesn't say, oh, they went to that synagogue and heard the reading of the law. Okay, they're fine. No, God judges us based on what we've done. Have we perfectly kept his perfect righteousness? Have we done everything we should do? That's how the judgment is based. It's impartial. It shows no favoritism. That's what verse 11 is pointing to. So in verse 12 is unfolding that. So all who have sinned without the law will perish without the law. Okay, so if you're a pagan that's not been in church, hasn't heard God's word, you will perish apart from God's word. You've still been disobedient to what you've known. Whatever that light has been that you've had, you've disobeyed whatever it is. And for those of you that have had the law and have known God's word, you'll perish with God's word, right? It says all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. You'll be held to that standard. You'll be held to whatever standard you have. Verse, eight, uh, verse 13 unpacks this more. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. What he's saying is just hearing it doesn't make you righteous, right? I'll say it in modern language. Showing up to church and hearing a sermon doesn't make you righteous. Saying righteousness is doing it, doing God's law. So are you doing it? I ask myself, am I doing God's law? Am I perfectly keeping what God has asked me to do? And I would say, no, I I haven't. And I don't think, I know most of you, I don't think you have either. So again, it's that, bad news. None of us have perfectly done righteousness. And the way James says it in James 2.10 is if you've broken the law in just one part, you're guilty of breaking it all. It's an all or nothing package. But Jews, and I think even religious people of today, are guilty of thinking, well, if I do like 70%, then I'm better than those wild pagan neighbors of mine. I'm better than those other bad people out there. Paul says, no. None of you are better than anybody else. We're all guilty. We're all condemned. He goes on in verse 14. He says, For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they're a law to themselves even though they do not have the law. So commentators argue about this verse. It's saying there's some kind of law in a Gentile's heart, right? So a Gentile, again, it means just the tribes, right? It's like the other ethnicities. He's basically talking about all of us. Those of you in the room that are not Jews, probably most of us, we're the other ethnicities. We're all the other tribes, right? Zillion other tribes that are not Jews, we're those people. And so if you at this time grew up without God's law that he revealed to the Jews through the Old Testament, then what he's saying is you still have some kind of law in your heart. Now there's two different ways to take this. One is natural law. We all have some sense of right and wrong, right? That's one way to take it. Another way to take it is this is the fulfillment of the new covenant. The new covenant is where God supernaturally, by faith in Jesus, writes his law on our hearts. And that's talked about in the scriptures in Jeremiah 31 and Hebrews 8, right? So two different ways that people can have the law in their hearts. 
One way is we have the law in our hearts in the sense of we all know what's right and wrong. The other way is being a transformed believer who loves Jesus and is walking with him. Since Paul hasn't really gotten yet to that really good news stuff, I think he's not talking about the new covenant fulfillment here. I think he's talking about natural law. I think he's just saying, hey, even people that haven't heard the Ten Commandments, they've got the Eight Commandments. They have, you know, they've got like a sense of right and wrong. I've talked about this many times before. You travel the world. Everybody thinks that at least a majority of the Ten Commandments is the way things should be. And it just varies by culture, right? Like, so our culture is obsessed with sexual immorality, so we might throw that commandment out as a culture, but we generally think it's good to tell the truth, you shouldn't murder people. You know, like, we, we generally agree with the law, we just have certain ones we throw out based on our culture. And so all cultures are that way, right? You go to other cultures and they're like, hey, lying's no big deal, it's totally fine. But sexual immorality, that's really bad, right? So every culture has some semblance of the law, natural law written on their hearts, and you know what? We don't even obey what we already agree with. So we all have some level of law that we're like, yeah, that's the law and that's the way people should live, and none of us do it. None of us do that law. And so that's his point here. So he's saying everyone's guilty. Verse 15, he explains it in more detail. These people with the natural law show that the work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. So there's this back and forth in your mind of, am I okay? Am I not okay? Well, yeah, I did pretty well, but no, that was bad. And, but I think I've done more good things than bad things. And that's universally a way that people try to be okay before God. I'm not that bad. I've done more good things than bad things. I'm not as bad as that really bad person I read about in my history book, right? Like, well, Hitler, he's really bad and I'm not like him. So I'll probably be saved, right? So you're working out all this stuff in your mind, and he says in verse 16, on that day, when according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. So there's a a judgment day coming where the secrets of our hearts will be revealed. So we're working out, well, I think I'm better than that guy, and I think I've done more good things than bad things, and he's saying "That's that's not enough. None of us have been perfectly righteous. Again, James 2.10, if you've broken any of the law, you've broken the law. You're guilty. We're all guilty. And there will be a day where our secrets will be revealed, where we can't hide under the facade, the mask of external religion. I grabbed a a picture that I think illustrates this pretty well, and this is from The Wizard of Oz. Raise your hand if you've seen The Wizard of Oz. Great work of literature. Okay, hopefully this applies to most of you. Um, In The Wizard of Oz, they're going to see this great and powerful wizard named Oz. Very good. All right. And when they come in to see him, his head is like glowing and floating in the sky and he has a booming voice and he's terrifying and there's pyrotechnics and fire and gas and lights and lasers and whatever else. Uh, And they're cowering. They're terrified of how big and powerful and awesome he is. And then the little annoying dog Toto, right, runs over and pulls back the curtain and reveals that he's a fake, that those are just a bunch of externals he's projecting to impress people. But he's just a weak, bumbling old man hiding behind a curtain, trying to act big, right? And so what Paul's trying to tell us here is whether you're a Jew or a non-Jew, whether you're religious or non-religious, we're all projecting a, a fake us. We're all saying, this is me, I'm great, I'm really, no, really, I'm good, no, really, I'm great, no, really, I'm awesome. And he says, that won't stand at the judgment. That's not enough. The fake you that you're projecting, the 
the hidden you that you're pretending behind is not enough. And in the end, there will be this judgment where our secrets are uncovered. The real us will be revealed. So just to clarify, I'm not telling you that means don't obey God's law, don't try to be good because it won't do you any good, it doesn't matter. No, I'm saying do good because Jesus has saved you. Don't run to external religion. Imitate what doing good looks like from the outside in order to become saved. Those are two completely different motivations. One is you're running to external religion to cover the shame, to cover the brokenness, to be your salvation. You're like driving down the highway, seeing someone else enjoying good music and trying to imitate them, trying to beat your hands on the steering wheel to the beat that someone else is hearing, and you're not even hearing it. And he's saying we all stand guilty, and, and we can't run to external religion as the cure. Even those of us, the Jews at that time, I'd say religious people today who have the rules of religion, it's not enough. Only Jesus is enough. Secrets will be revealed. Jesus continually was in conflict with the religious leaders of his day, saying that they were like whitewashed tombs. They look great on the outside, but they're full of dead men's bones and all kinds of uncleanness. And that's who we are. And we can run and imitate the marks of external religion and try to look good on the outside, but it ultimately won't clean up the inside. So the question for you is, where are you placing your trust? Are you placing your trust in the marks of external religion in order to be saved? Or are the good things that you do in your life, are the religious type activities you engage in, things that you do because you're saved? because of the grace that God has shown to you. Do we want you to live righteously, to do externally good things? Yes, but you don't do them as something to rest your hope in, something to be saved by. As Paul continues to unpack this argument, the next thing that he'll say in this next section is that external religion fails to help others. Another way to say this is it doesn't actually work. And so he's going to list this long litany of ways that Jews described themselves. So this is from the ancient literature of the Jews themselves, what he's quoting here. They thought of themselves as teachers because they had God's law. They thought of themselves, thought of themselves as guides to the blind, instructors to the foolish because they had God's wisdom. And so again, there's a parallel. In modern culture, we, we see ourselves, those of us who have God's word, as we have something to share with the world. We have God's revelation. And that's true. But what Paul's going to say is there's often a hypocrisy which makes us pose instead of actually helping others. We're so obsessed with how we look. We're so obsessed with, do I look like a teacher? Do I look like I'm good? Do I look like an instructor? That we're not actually teaching or instructing anybody. So we'll read verses 17 through 24. I'll put the verses up. I'm trying to put the verses on the screen too. Um. Let me know if that makes you stop reading your Bible. You know, the, the jury's out. So I want to put it up here so you don't get too lost, but I also want you to look at the book in your hands as well. So verse 17 says, If you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you're instructed from the law, and if you're sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having the law, the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? 
You who abhor or hate idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. So this is the kind of stuff that Jesus hammered the Pharisees, the Jewish leaders with. He said, you're acting like you're teachers of the law, but you're not actually helping anybody. You're making it harder on them. You're not helping anybody. You're just, you're just posing, right? I think a great example of this is bodybuilding. A lot of times we work out um, to look good. We don't work out to be strong, to be of use in society, right? We work out to look good. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I think God made us to be beautiful, and there's a sense in which we glorify God through beauty and um, being in good shape physically. But, but really, the, the point of our muscles is to do something, right? Like, that's what they're there for. They're for lifting. That's why if, if you had a weightlifting coach like I did, he would say, you do curls for the girls, right? Have you ever heard that one? It's like you could do curls all day and not really be any stronger. Like, you couldn't really do anything more with them. Um, so I have a picture here of a little boy flexing in the mirror. You know, we live now in a selfie culture where working out is all about taking a creepy picture in the mirror, right? Um, and so, again, it's, it's not that that's a sin in and of itself, although that's questionable. We could talk about that another time. Um, but we don't work out to look like we work out, right? We work out to be healthy. We work out to be strong, to be able to serve others. And so Paul's making the argument that often in external religion, we get caught up in this game of trying to look like we're helpful, but not actually helping. You see the connection there? So we're not actually helping others when we're focused on self. There's a way that we look at religion, that we look at faith, where we're just concerned with impressing other religious people in our circle. We, we read the Bible not because we are hungry for God's word and longing for it, but because we want to look like we're the kind of people that read the Bible. We pray not because we're desperate to talk to our Father who wants to hear from us, but we pray because we want to we wanna impress other people and say, yeah, I am, I'm praying. I'm a praying person. That's what I do. And so it becomes this game where we're, we're trying to look like we've externally got it together instead of actually longing for God and loving Him and, again, responding to what He's telling us. In faith, God, you are good. God, I trust you. And it, it's not perfection, right? I mean, trusting God doesn't translate into perfection. I'm not saying, well, if you really trusted him, you'd, you'd do everything perfectly all the time. And I'm also not saying if you really trusted him, you'd never do these external things. No, you, you do these external things because you trust him, not to win his favor. Because he loves you. Because he's given you the righteousness of Christ by faith. Because Jesus took your judgment and condemnation for you. So that when you trust in him, instead of trusting in the marks of external religion, Jesus covers you. You're hidden in him. And when God looks at you, he sees you and delights in you. He loves you. You're his child. And so that's a completely different motivation than getting caught up and just looking religious, right? Trying to impress the people around you. We should be driven by this love that the Father has for us. And then finally, what we see is then that this external religion does not change hearts. It doesn't change hearts. So verse 23, he ended, or verse 24, he ended the previous section, before this section saying, you who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. 
For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. So what he's saying is um, you're trusting in the external marks of the law and the people that see you are blaspheming God. They're not seeing you actually keep it. And then now he's going to say, because there's no real heart transformation. Because your heart has not actually been changed. So again, going back to Jesus' arguments, uh, Jesus made the argument that you religious people, you clean the outside of the cup, but the inside is dirty. You whitewash your tombs, but inside there's dead bones, right? So now he's going to focus that on the actual heart. You need to have a heart that's transformed. So let me read this section. He says in verse 25, For indeed, circumcision is a value if you obey the law, but if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. So, so circumcision, for those of you that don't know, is an ancient Jewish ritual. Men's reproductive organs were marked. They were uh, body modification, we would call it today, right? Surgically, extra skin was removed from the male reproductive organ. And so this was a ceremony that was supposed to symbolize being cleansed, right? Cutting away of extra flesh from a very private and personal part of the human body to symbolize you being transformed and cleansed from the inside out. But what he's saying is that mark was never enough. Just a mark on your body never actually made anyone clean, but the point was that our hearts would be marked, that our hearts would have sin cut away. So in that that act of circumcision, the cutting away of extra flesh, it's supposed to symbolize the cutting away of our reliance in the flesh on sin. And he's saying, you can have your body marked, but not actually have your heart marked. So to go back to the section earlier, you who think you're teachers, are you being taught? You who hate idolatry, are you actually idolaters? You who publicly and externally say, I hate these things. Are you in your heart loving these things? Remember the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus said, you have heard it said, don't commit adultery. I tell you, if you look after a woman lustfully in your heart, you're guilty of adultery, right? Go back and look at the Sermon on the Mount and see how it parallels. It's in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Matthew 5, 6, and 7. See how it parallels what Paul is arguing here. Paul is saying, you're You're bragging, I have the law, I have the law, I'm a hearer of the law. And he says, but you're not a doer of the law because you're not keeping it from your heart. So Jesus was pushing the religious people of his day in the Sermon on the Mount to say, no, you're guilty. You think just because you've not publicly cheated on your wife that you're faithful, but you lust after other women, so your heart is unclean. So here he's saying, it's not enough to have a body that's marked, you have to have a heart that's been transformed. I grabbed a picture of the heart because I think we in our culture tend to think of it as a uh, physical part of our body, which of course it is. It's where our blood is pumped. But in the ancient world, they thought of it as not just the place that uh, pumped your blood, right, which is central and important, but they also saw, saw it as the seat of your will and drives and emotions and direction in life, kind of the center of your being. So there, it has a physical parallel, right? Because I could have a, an arm chopped off and still 
function, right? I could still live. I would function less well, but I could still function as a person. But if I have my heart taken out, I'm not going to work anymore, right? And so there's a sense in which it's central to who we are. So you can mess with the peripherals and still kind of function, you know, kind of like tinker around with the edges. But if the heart's not healthy, you won't be healthy. The way Jesus describes this is the tree is good because it's got good roots. And that's how you will know then if it's got good roots, you'll see the fruit, but that fruit grows out of the root. So again, heart transformation should drive external transformation. So he says it again this way. He says in verse 28, No one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. So just being ethnically Jewish, he's saying, is not enough. Going through the rituals and having the external marks and saying, hey, this is what marks me as belonging to God. He says, that's not enough. Your heart, by faith, has to belong to God. So he says, you who hate idols, are you robbing temples? In the book of Galatians, Paul says that these pagan Christians who are being told by Jews that it's not enough to just trust in Jesus, but that they have to keep all the external marks of the Jewish religion if they really want to be saved. It's Jesus plus Judaism, and this is called the Judaizing heresy. Paul says, no way. Paul says, Jesus is enough. And what Paul says there in Galatians is he says, if you're tempted to go to anything other than Jesus alone, if you're tempted even to go back to the Old Testament law and think that Jesus is fine, but I've got to perfectly keep the Old Testament law to really be saved, then he's saying you're, you're going to another idol. You're actually going back to idolatry. And so Jesus is asking us, we say we hate idolatry, we say we worship only God, but are we relying on external religion as if external religion is a God that can save us? Saying you're not saved by being outwardly religious. You're saved by having a heart that's transformed. And here he talks about this new covenant transformation. A Jew is one inwardly and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. So keeping 80% of the law and being better than everybody else you know is not enough to be saved, to stand before God holy. God is absolutely holy. And James 2.10 says, if you've broken any part of the law, you've broken all of it. So hopefully this bad news, this reality that external religion can't save us, is driving you to want to give up. Hopefully it's driving me to want to give up. The goal here is surrender, surrender to Jesus. Again, I don't want you to to stop caring about doing what's right. I just want you to stop caring about doing what's right as a way to impress God. I want you to only do what's right because you know that God delights in you and he loves you through Jesus. and Because he's already saved you because he's already proven his worth to you through Christ taking your sins and giving you his righteousness. Because of that, you think, I I trust him. I want to do what he says. I trust him. I want to do what he says. So there's a lot of bad news in this section. And so as we end this section on the dangers of external religion, I want to um, cheat a little bit and jump ahead to chapter 3 and just end here in chapter 3. In chapter 3, it says in verse 23, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So all this talk where Paul is saying, 
uh, Jews can't be saved by being Jewish, and pagans can't be saved by being cool and pagan, we've all sinned. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. But then he says the hope is Jesus. Verse 24 says, we're justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Propitiation is a fancy word that means God is made happy with you. So if you're trusting in anything else to make God happy with you, you're missing the true gospel. You're missing the grace of a God who says, I'm happy with you because of Jesus. And that's something that must be received, accepted by faith. You say, I trust you. Thank you. Thank you that you delight in me because of what Jesus has done for, for me. Let me pray for us, and then we'll respond in worship together. God, we thank you that you delight in us because of the work of Jesus and not because of our failed attempts to make ourselves worthy. God, I pray that you'd help every one of us to take our faith out of the marks of external religion and place our faith in you. And I pray that as we do that, we would actually begin doing the law and not just hearing it. We would actually begin living it out. Again, not not to impress you, but because you have made us your sons and daughters. So help us to live out uh, what we've already attained in Christ. I pray that you would make this real for your glory and for our joy. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.